Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Achtung Millwall supports the Lions Food Hub and all of our advertising revenues will be donated to support this fantastic initiative. It's now based at the Lions Centre on Bolina Road and it's run by our own Kelly Webster. This is a friendly food bank supporting families in the Bermondsey and SE16 area. If you can help support the Lions Food Hub in any way, please visit at Lions Food Hub on Twitter or get in touch with us at Achtung Millwall. The Lions Food Hub. Come on, you lions. You're listening to Achtung Millwall, broadcasting from the beautiful South Berlin. Except no sandwich. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to um, a special edition of Nick and Neil's History Hour. This might be about a Nick and Neil's History Half Hour. Joining me in this virtual studio is Mr. Neil Thistler. How are you doing, Neil? Hello, Nick. Yeah, no, well, we've got a brand new studio, no expense spared. We do. Our stream yard. Yeah, we are. Um, highly recommended, and, and, and I can endorse it, actually. It's very simple, and um, if I ever wanted to go down the video route, which I don't, then it would be a great ideal setup. But, um, Neil, we, we um, spoke recently to um, an author, football author, quite a, quite a well-known chap, Mark Metcalf, to talk about one of Millwall's greatest defenders, Charlie Hurley. Uh, it was a fascinating conversation, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Charlie Hurley, one of those players who's almost forgotten by the, or, or probably isn't even known by the younger generation these days, no. but was a player who joined us in the early 50s and revered at the time. I've spent, what, three, two or three very, very, very good seasons at Millwall and uh, moved on to Sunderland, where we went on to even bigger and greater things. Uh, Absolutely. In, yeah, well, interestingly, has been voted in Millwall's team of the century yeah. and uh, made the same side, but for Sunderland, as well, which is which, which is no mean feat. No, it's not. It's not um, a great play, and also possibly a victim of the way that football was structured back then. I mean, nowadays he would almost certainly have played at a much much higher level than, in fairness, uh, even Sunderland, who were a second division and middling kind of first division side at, at, at points in the sixties. Um, nowadays, I think a player of Charlie Hurley's stature would command the very biggest money. And we kind of touch on that in our conversation with, with Mark Metcalf. Um, 
this is this is part of a wide longer conversation, listeners. We've we've just um, distilled the Mill section as this is the, the Mill history half an hour with Nick and Neil. Um, if you want to listen to the full conversation, do tune into our football history podcast. We've got the the whole um, of of Charlie's life covered with Mark, and that includes Sunderland and, and Reading and other clubs where where he went on to play. But I thought um, we we just cut out the Mill part for the for our Mill show, so we're going to cut over to that now. And Neil and I will be back after we've heard from Mr. Mark Metcalf. Achtung, Millwall. How did he end up with Millwall? I mean, it's a great story in itself. Obviously, like a lot of uh, people from his uh, his background, uh, high levels of poverty in Ireland, so they yeah. moved from Cork almost uh, almost immediately on his birth. In fact, the, the, the next time he went back to Ireland, was actually to play for Ireland uh, 20 odd years, 20 years later. Uh, he lived in East London during the Blitz. Uh, one of the uh, tragedies early in his life, he was out playing f- football with a great mate of his uh, called Gordon Smith. And uh, what happened was the, the air and sirens went off and his dad had always insisted that he come home. He was half and half. He was going to go to uh, Gordon's house. You probably know what the rest of the tale is. Mm-hmm. He, he went home. Following day, he woke up, and unfortunately, his mate had been had been killed. Or the whole family had uh, been slaughtered. Um, so he was lucky in that in in that in that respect. Uh, I mean, football was different era. Obviously, Second World War, uh, massive crowds, uh, but there wasn't the scouting systems which 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 took place. But he he played for Essex. He played good local football. Initially, he didn't have any football boots. His mum and dad couldn't afford that. And when he did get them, obviously, they were his prized possessions. It's not like today. He played in them for three, for three years. Uh, wouldn't My son is 13, 14, and he doesn't play in football boots. and doesn't get as much kick out of them as either as well. But you know, that would be the situation. Fortunately, you know, we've got a better standard of living uh, uh, t- t- today. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so anyway, he... he West Ham sought to sign him, uh, by which point he had, in fact, got a job at Ford's Dagenham, like a lot of Irish people. Of uh, and his dad was a toolmaker there. Charlie was an apprentice, really apprentice. He, he was. It wasn't. It wasn't a serious trade. Nevertheless, uh, the pay he got was more than what he was offered to sign for West Ham. And in a large family, in a large family, uh, the family needed the extra pound a week, so he turned it down. Uh, he was playing for Raynham uh, Youth Club in a uh, in a final, and he uh, he actually there was a lad there who was rated to be a top class player, and Charlie marked him out of the game. And afterwards, Bill Voicey, who uh, obviously worked for Millwall for a very long time, he seen him and he said, "Do you fancy signing for uh, Millwall?" Charlie's a fairly sort of matter of fact type character, uh, and uh, when I interviewed him, he said. You know, why would anybody? He says, I was trying to take no notice of this old bloke, you know, wanting to kind of wear. And uh, he said, why would anybody want to sign me on the on the basis of one one game? Uh, but in fact, Millwall did want to sign him. Uh, and he he sat down with Bill and he sat down with uh, Charlie Hewitt, who was the manager of Millwall at the time. And he signed for the club at, a, you know, twice what his wages were at, uh, at the uh, Ford Stagenham. Yeah. Uh, what was also quite a nice story is that the foreman 
where he was at was saying, hey, Charlie, I, I can't tell you the Irish accent. I can't tell you any other Irish Probably accent. best you don't yeah. try, Mark. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably a wise move, to be fair. So it's, it, he basically said, he basically said to me, he was telling them, like, you know, you could, you know, you could get injured. You'd be better off stopping here. Oh, of course, really? all the rest of the working class blokes where he was where he was working, they were like, "Take it, are you crackers?" <laughs> cheering him to cheering him to the rafters. You know what I mean? Come on, yeah. go on, go and do your best. Like you know, like my, most working class most people, people would do. Yeah, would, yeah, yeah. They, they they would they would want one of their own. Obviously, it's a very popular song. He's one of our own. It's yeah. not just about that. They're from that. They're from the same area arts because you're from the same sort of class background, isn't it, really? It's an opportunity to get out of the grimy, uh, horrible place to work, uh, Ford Stagnum. Many, I've got many friends who have worked there. I'm, I'm not doing them a disservice by saying it was horrible. Uh, no, if you have a choice but, of, of playing so football if, for a living, you know, Mark. Given the choice, you take, you take the football. Yeah. Of, of course you do. I mean, we've yeah. charted this extremely well in, in the book on Fred Spikes. who called him the first great working class footballer, you know, that joy of not being, not having to go to work and, and doing something you want to do and outside. Uh, and so, you know, Charlie, uh, he was 16, uh, very good footballer, even at 16, he made his debut, his first team debut for Millwall at the age of 17. Uh, so it shows what a good player he was. Went down to Torquay. They went there and back in the same day. We're talking about uh, well, 1953 here, Mark, aren't we? 1954, we're talking. 1954. Born 36, okay. uh, birthday right. in the October, played in the January, January the 30th, uh, 1954. Two's a piece draw for the game. All the lads in the team are saying to him, just do your best, you'll be okay. And afterwards, they're all saying, bye, who are you? Can you play like that every week? You know, he'd made a, a real impression on, on these uh, footballers. The Millwall were in the third division south. Yeah. Um, they'd uh, they were doing okay, and and they did do okay the first couple of seasons. But the problem with that was that uh, to go up you had to finish top, uh, mm. and 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 they didn't. They finished fifth on 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 one occasion, but then then struggled a little bit. Uh, the man who had the most impression, without doubt, on Charlie as a footballer was the goalkeeper Malcolm Fillinson who went on to replace uh, Bert the Cat Williams at uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Probably, Williams probably the greatest goalkeeper that's ever played for, for, for Wolves. And they've had one or two good ones over the years. But Malcolm wasn't very far behind him. He didn't play internationally because he was in Scotland and they had a few good goalkeepers. But Malcolm's attitude was quite straightforward. Firstly, uh, even 40 years later when Charlie seen him, Charlie referred to him as his dad. So right. that gives you an okay. idea of who was who was Some in charge impact. of that yeah. defence, basically. Yeah. And Malcolm was as is one. He just said, "If I'm coming for the ball, get out of the way. And if you don't get out of the way, not only will I get the ball, but I'll get you." <laughs> and that was Malcolm's attitude. He was an exceptionally talented goalkeeper, very very brave goalkeeper, and proved ultimately to be a brilliant signing uh, by Stan Cullis, uh, played behind the great Billy Wright. Uh, and, and a fantastic, well, fantastic Wolves team. Well, he was a, a big, big impression. There were other players, uh, John Shepard, for example, up front, who was a talented goal scorer, very mobile footballer, John Shepard, and a brave, uh, uh, a brave player. I don't know if you uh, 
have ever interviewed his daughter, but his daughter did that fantastic she uh, has a book. book. Yeah, 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 that's a really uh, is it just from something like the Lion's Den? I'm forgetting it. In and then. out of the Lion's Den, or something. In like and out that, of the Lion's Den. Yeah, fantastic, Julie, fantastic book. Yeah, yeah, Julie, very nice young lady. Yeah, yeah, a great, great book. I got some copies and and all that. I was delighted uh, to read it uh, as well. But the atmosphere at Millwall, according to one or two others, like Bill Lloyd, who became a goalkeeper as well, a few of them wasn't wasn't that good. Uh, Charlie Hewitt uh, was very much the old school type uh, manager, mm. and uh, he divided uh, opinion. Mark is the modern. He expression. divided opinion. Yes, he divided. <laughs> that's, a, that's one way of putting it. Yes, cheerful indeed. Charlie Hewitt. He was to be ironically sacked on New Year's Day, which was a bit of a cruel way of being got rid of <laughs> in 1956 and replaced by Ron Gray. Now Charlie actually came into the team and he replaced what was slightly unusual. Uh, in his place, Jerry Bowler, who was also a ball-playing centre-back. Uh, Malcolm says that you could come off a game in muddy conditions and you wouldn't have you would have thought Jerry might have just come on at the end, so right. clean were his clothes uh, at this point. Now, that definitely wasn't the case with Charlie. He got stuck in. But the admiration that the Millwall fans, and they had some hard players at uh, Millwall, Stan Anslow, who was a, a very, very good footballer, and who at one point actually was pushed upfield in one of the seasons and scored over a dozen league goals. He was a, you know, there's that there's that wall down the side, isn't there, at Millwall? And, he, you know, he, he was he was fairly well known for putting a pause in there, outside left or out in, 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 into that wall, to be, to be fair. He's still a good footballer. He took good penalties as well, as I understand it. Um, Pat Seward, obviously a very good, talented uh, player for for Millwall. But Charlie was loved not only because of his never-see-a-die attitude and his head and ability, because he could get the ball down and he could play. He could pass. And that was un- unusual. He took a gamble in the early stages at his career at Millwall to try and play. He was He was quite quiet, you know, he's taking in the things that were going on around him and learning. But at the same time, he did want to express the fact that he had had skills. I mean, he, and the fact that he tried to play football actually cost cost him when he went to Sunderland because in his first two games, uh, Sunderland conceded seven and six. And as he says, he went to the bingo one night and the bloke said seven and six was Charlie Hurley worth it. Uh, so that was that was the case with Charlie. Uh, and he did, you know, he had a, a very poor, poor couple of games. But yeah, so he was a very, very, very good player. He was in, he was in, at the same time, he had to do his national service and that cost him perhaps the opportunity, well, it did cost him the opportunity to play in the big game of the 1950s, which was the uh, Birmingham City uh, game uh, in the quarterfinals, I believe, in the FA Cup. And uh, Millwall had uh, deservedly, and obviously, even now I'm still happy about that, managed to beat the uh, reigning FA Cup uh, holders, which was Newcastle, Newcastle United. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some great pictures, isn't there, of yeah, that yeah. game with Asset the fans images, hanging on yeah. to the turnstile, hanging on to the the, 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 uh, yeah. the floodlights, yeah. 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 And, yeah. and you, there's some fantastic ones. Now, what had happened is that he'd actually said something slightly out misplaced, and so the uh, he wasn't going to be allowed off camp anywhere to play in the game. <laughs> but in fact, it was already agreed in advance 
that he wasn't going to play in that match. They were going to keep the same side. Actually, right. it worked against Millwall because Birmingham, they they beat them easily, beat them four, the 4-1. Four and obviously, they went on to reach the final. Uh, uh, they beat, they were beaten by Manchester City in, in, in the final. Arguably, Birmingham's greatest day up until they won the, the League Cup. It was 10 years or a decade ago. So, so Charlie was, you know, Charlie was playing football. He, he also had a spell, uh, which I'll come, the reason why he came back into the team was quite straightforward. He, um, he, he, he was missing for quite a, quite a long time because he suffered an injury whilst playing for uh, the army team. Right. He had actually been said, it had actually been said to him, he didn't have to play in this particular game, but he thought he would use it as a bit of a warm-up for his international debut against Spain. And the problem with that was that he uh, got injured and he couldn't play. And uh, he came back into the team and they played him centre-forward. Um, actually got well beat Millwall in both of those games he came back. He scored in both of them. And if you ask Charlie now, he would tell you that given the opportunity, he would have played centre-forward. His career would have been as a centre-forward. And right. he regretted that at, at the end. Now, during the period of time Charlie was there, to give you some idea of how well he was playing, is he was selected for the first side from England to play in European football. So he was selected for the London side against Frankfurt, 24th of October, 1955, game played at Wembley. England and this was a combination team, Mark, wasn't it? London... It was a combination team. Combined. Uh, him, and, him and Vic Groves were the two from the third division. Uh, yeah. Bobby Robson, for example, was playing. And 2-0 uh, down, the 1-3-2. Papers generally agreed that if he wasn't the best player on the field, he's very close to it. Now, we're talking here, a lad who'd just gone age 19, who was showing that he was a good footballer in third division football. He could get the ball, he would fight hard for the ball. But against the top-class footballers, he could also play. Problem was, he was injured by the time next time came along. And unfortunately, he never played European football again, which is why he was so keen, in particular, to play for for Ireland. The Ireland side, yeah. Yeah. Now yeah. he's he's he he made his debut for Ireland before he went to Sunderland. It was in the summer of '57, end of the season '56-'57. Cut a very long story short, uh, with less than 20 seconds remaining. Ireland were beating England 1-0. He come into the tide after they'd been hammered 5-1 at Wembley. Uh, game was played at Dalymon Park in Dublin. First time he'd been back to Ireland. Uh, and if if Ireland had held on to that, uh, they what would have meant is Ireland would have travelled to Denmark, which they subsequently won that game. And if they'd won that game, the two teams would have played off again for uh, to go to, to Sweden. Uh, he's up against Tommy yeah. Taylor, and he did very well. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if Ironies, um, John Attio in particular uh, scored the goal if I recall rightly John Attio was one of those players which Charlie often struggled against you have certain players who you struggle against and Attio was definitely one of them his, his, his mobility and, uh, and in the air always meant that a very good game of football was guaranteed between those two between those two footballers the other person who Charlie might have struggled against when he when he played 
if there was the things he did generally pretty well against one to ones. Um, was Doric Dogan, him and Doric Dogan, a right battle royal, and uh, Win Davies, uh, who, who was Walsh. also a, uh, yeah. great, yeah. a great, great yeah. footballer, played for Bolton and played for Newcastle. Yeah. Those, those, those were the those were the, the three players you could see. Against the rest, he did he did pretty well. He played against Greaves, for example, at Roker Park on a number of occasions, and as Jimmy said, uh, he, he never scored against them. Bit different down at uh, White Hart Lane, uh, where Jimmy Scott <laughs> scored a few goals against Charlie and some of the other 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 players. But it was said of that Tottenham side of the six. No, I better not say that, otherwise I'm going to get into trouble of mates of mine who follow Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. So, so he moved. He moved for a fee of eighteen thousand in the October '57 plus a friendly, which brought in three thousand. Pound. The different so times more than eighteen thousand. <laughs> you know, you work that out. That that was the highest transfer fee at the time. Yeah, was uh, John Charles, which was sixty-five thousand pounds. Now, if you work that out, so it was a third of the highest transfer fee. So a comparable figure in today's football is that Charlie Hurley would have been transferred at the age of twenty-one, just twenty-one. For a figure of about thirty-five million pounds, wow. that gives you an idea. It's a wow. sort of sums of money that Rio Ferdinand was transferred from West Ham to Leeds, and then from Leeds on to Manchester United. It's so it gives you just some idea of his standing, and that was despite the fact that his injury had left him with uh, a little bit. A, it, it reduced con- his ability certainly to make a sliding tackle, which were right. a key component of the uh, of the game at that time. You can't get away with such tackles, of course, today. No no question about that. So he would have been happy to, to be to be fair with that. So it gives you it gives you a, a good standard of, of how how good he was. Achtung, Mailball. Neil, what a fascinating story, Charlie's life is you know it's a social history as much as it is a football history isn't it yeah somebody like mark who who's who very much is a social historian as well yeah probably actually yeah. a little bit like yourself i think i mean it's, it's, it's relevant because i mean obviously football just traveled a long way the impact of money is is many fold and and that was what wasn't in the lives of players of charlie's uh background and in the game generally back then i mean came from a um, very poor background in Ireland and came to work for the Ford Works in, in, in Dagenham. Um, and money was the driving factor. I mean, I, I thought it was great, the the idea that you'd have a choice between working on the production line at Ford's or maybe turning down a football career because you got paid more making the motors, you know. Yeah, yeah, but that was what happened back then, really, yeah. wasn't it? Now Absolutely. it's a no-brainer. Now you're offered millions at the age of 13, 14 to to sign for clubs and agents or buy your parents' house and all kinds of underhand things. <laughs> and, uh, but but back then it was it, it was really a choice because if something happened to you playing football, you were buggered because there was no Absolutely. real welfare state was there as such in the early 50s. And no, certainly it wasn't as easy as it is now. I mean, these were hard men and they, you know, we, we've, we've touched on it already um, in other, other conversations how... Uh, the football world then, um, you had to be tough to survive. 
Um, I mean, for, for Charlie back then, we're talking about the early 1950s listeners to suffer a cruciate li- knee ligament injury, which nowadays with modern treatment is, you know, is not an easy injury to sustain. But for him to come back from that um, and still maintain a top level career is, is incredible. It says a lot about him as a person. Yeah. As well as the skill of the surgeon, because, yeah, well, these days it's a relatively, I hate to say it's a relatively minor injury. It's still quite a serious injury. But you're out for a year, yeah, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months, and you come back, you might have lost the odd yard of pace. But, but back in Charlie's day, that was that was career ending. Yeah, well, you think 70s and the 80s, maybe even the 90s, Gaza was never quite the same after his cruciate knee ligament injury, was he? So it says a lot about Charlie Hurley as a character and about him as a footballer. And is it, is it you know, I hate this modern phrase, football intelligence, but it's kind of the only one we've got. But to manage your career, I mean, he suffered this cruciate um, injury at Millwall. Um, but to manage that, the aftermath of that, and to yet go on to Sunderland and really, you know, the bulk of his career and the, and the bulk of his um, best times were spent at Roker Park. But to be able to do that whilst managing an injury at that level speaks for me how intelligent the player he was. Yeah, and yeah, but the treatment wouldn't have been very much done. No, it would have been basic, wouldn't it? You <laughs> it would have been. To be honest. Yeah, but it would have been sense. almost, you'd like to have waited until you could walk and run again and then sent back out there, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Kneecap removed if there was all kind of, but But no, to maintain a top-level career and to win, yeah, but did Mark say that he won 40 international caps? For the Republic, caps? yeah. Yeah, and made yeah. two or three appearances with us, but went on to play over thirty times. Absolutely, when he was at Sunderland, yeah, like the pound note. Which, well, I, I don't blame a man. I mean, if he's come from poor circumstances, he'll know the value of of, of his talent, won't he? And um, you know, uh, these these were uh, times where the football industry was starting to turn itself into something like the modern world of highly paid players, but. Um, there was always money in the game, listeners. It just went in the direction of the directors back then, didn't it? Rather than to the players, it was a different difference in in that sense. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, we say now that it's business orientated, but but back then it was positively ruthless, wasn't it? Absolutely. Players, play players were on minimum wages, and there were huge crowds came into football. Then, okay, there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't the commercialisation. No. Um, a fascinating, a fascinating story. Fascinating story, in my opinion. Um, and there's a great quote um, on the Wikipedia page that the Irish have produced a new, a great new world class footballer in centre back Charlie Hurley, and he would have been playing for Millwall at this time, listeners. So, it's not often that you get that kind of sentence, Neil, is it? A world class player from Millwall <laughs> <laughs> mentioned in the same breath is probably the first time ever, isn't it? It, I, I've seen it very often. That's that's for sure. Um, so there we are. I hope you enjoyed that Millwall slice of our conversation with with um, Mark Metcalf. If you want to listen to the whole thing, we're going to put that out on the Football History Podcast channel. Um, but we thought we'd do this just as a purely Millwall um, section um, for his Millwall years in the early nineteen fifties. So 
big thank you to Neil Fissler for joining me for this this um, Charlie Hurley special. It's nice to be able to do this kind of stuff, Neil, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And well, we've got some more planned. Absolutely. One or two others in the pipeline. One or two people that we have spoken to and that we're hoping to get on in the very near future. Uh, there we are. Good stuff. So stay tuned for further editions of Nick and Neil's Mill History Hour, or possibly even half an hour. Sometimes it might be 40 minutes. We'll see. Till then, dear listeners, bye for now. So, dear listeners, there's nothing beloved of the Millwall heart more than a game against West Ham United. It's almost... Um, well, it is in our blood, and I'm going to reinforce that point with you today because my eye fell upon a wonderful page. I think it must be from a Mill history book, and I believe it was uh, Stan LDN on Twitter who posted a, a photo of a 1906 FA report into a particularly keenly contested local derby as the sporting life of uh, the 19th of September 1906 puts it, a keen local rivalry um, between West Ham and Millwall. Um, the game was played in the Western League, dear listeners, the Western League, which was a kind of um, uh, a reserve-style league played at this time. Millwall and West Ham at this point were both Southern League clubs, uh, but this game was played at Upton Park on the 17th of September 1906, and there was an FA report into um, uh, into the game afterwards. Um, there is nothing new in this life, dear listeners. Nothing is ever new. Um, so the commission reported on on the events at Upton Park this day. The commissioners, the commissioners, shall we say, were the Messrs. C. W. Alcock, Charles Alcock, who was one of the founder members of the FA and the creator of the FA Cup. I think he played for Wanderers in the very first FA Cup final, C.W. Alcock. Captain E.G. Curtis, don't know him, but certainly anyone called Captain Curtis, in, in you know, inspires um, authority. And one H. Porter, that's the three-man commission into the events at West Ham on the 17th of September 1906. I'll read it verbatim for you, there's not much to it. The commission, having taken evidence, are satisfied that this game was not contested in a friendly spirit, dear listeners. The play, on the whole, was far too vigorous, and there were many fouls which were unchecked. The match was not properly controlled by Mr E. Case of the Cheshire FA, who was the referee. Um, consequently, we suspend Jarvis of West Ham for 14 days from the 30th of October for what we consider to be a serious foul against Dean of Millwall. In imposing this penalty, the Commission have regard to the player's previous good character. The players of both teams are censured and warned as to their future conduct. Um, the referee, Mr Case, is suspended for the, uh, for the season, for the whole season. With regard to the behaviour of spectators, the Commission are satisfied that there were unseemly incidents and that these were not sufficiently serious to warrant them taking any other action beyond requiring the West Ham Club to post special notices at their ground, warning their spectators of the consequences which may result from misbehaviour. The clubs, having admitted their knowledge of the vigorous and foul play uh, and that the game was not controlled by the referee, one of the clubs having protested to the Western League against Mr Case being appointed by the league in any of their future fi uh, fixtures, are both severely censured for not having reported the matters to the, to the FA. 
Um, and then they go on to list some, some punishments for West Ham, that there should be a clear space of 10 feet between the touchline and the fence and supports of the spectators. That sheet iron advertisements shall not be attached to the fence. Sheet iron adver- adverts shall not be attached to the fence unless the edges are protected. So bare edges were on show. Um, and that there should be a clear space of 15 feet between the goalposts and the spectators. So the Sporting Life reports on a, on a keenly contested rivalry which exists between these two East London combinations was plainly in evidence, it says, at Upton Park yesterday when a poor display resulted in a victory for West Ham by one goal to nil. An evenly contested game. Sounds like it was more rough stuff than um, than actual flowing football, shall we say. Comrie left the field. A Mill player, George Comrie, left the field for an injury. And another Mill player, Dean, um, was actually mentioned in that FA in that uh, FA report, serious foul play for by the West Ham player on Dean, who would have to leave the game also early in in the match. Uh, Mill could make little headway, says the Sporting Life, and the result West Ham won Mill nil. Um, the Bolton Evening News goes into matters in a little bit more detail, dear listeners. Um, it's only a paragraph. Bolton, Bolton Evening News up north, eighteenth of September. This this edition, a free fight, a match says the Bolton Evening News. At Upton Park yesterday, West Ham United played Millwall in their match in the Western League. So rough was the play of both sides that the game soon lost all interest. The hostile spirit was not confined to the players. dear. To such a pitch of excitement were the spectators roused by a regrettable and severe injury to Dean, the Millwall outside right, that a free fight took place at one end of the ground. In a scuffle with Jarvis, the Millwall left half, Dean was thrown heavily against the railings and he injured his side so badly it may be some time before he's able to play again. This would probably be on these advertising holdings that the FA were talking about. Um, this was not the only misfortune that befell Millwall. Shortly after the change of ends, Comrie was hurt and like Dean, he had to be carried off the field. West Ham winning the game by one goal to nothing. So it sounds all go there. Free fight, fist fights in the crowd. Um, players being thrown against the fence, against the advertising hoardings, which the FA have instructed must not have bare edges, bare metal edges. Um, it sounds like a good old school Millwall versus West Ham game. Um, I mean, the Western League still exists, actually. Um, interesting. It's, it's actually on the same level nowadays as the Ishmian League. It's, it's a kind of a feeder to the Southern League. Uh, no, it's actually levels 9 and 10, so it's further down still than the Ishmian League. It's, uh, it feeds into the Southern League. Their champions are promoted to the Southern League Division 1 South. Nowadays, it's based almost exclusively with West Country, um, Cornish, Devonian, Dorset sides. Uh, but back in the day, it used to be uh, treated as a second kind of competition, inferior to the to the Southern League. But certainly, just looking at the list of champions from the 19... 19- Hundreds. I mean, you've got Pompey, Tottenham, Millwall won it twice in a row, 1908, 1909. West Ham had won it in 1907, Bristol. I think there is a concern, I was reading in James Murray's Millwall Lions of the South book, that there was an actual concern on the, on the workload being imposed on the players. It was pretty relentless stuff. Pitches <clears throat> were heavy. The North Greenwich pitch where Millwall had played at this time was known as um, a, a kind of a mud uh, a mud bank, largely speaking, because of the nature of the soil there. So the players were quite literally becoming exhausted by the relentless cup competitions, Southern League um, workload, 
and then throw in, in, in the Western League. It, it was treated as a, West, uh, as a, as a reserve competition. Um, often, certainly at Millwall, many of the first-team players will be doubling up duties in the Western League as well. So we withdrew um, with the probably around about the time of the departure of Millwall from the Isle of Dogs to Newcross. I think that was the point at which um, the Western League was was um, signed, you know, quietly shuffled off into the in, in, into the, into the past. Um, it would continue um, predominantly Western um, of England sides, Yeovil. I'm seeing one in in 1930s Bristol Rovers, but then post-war it becomes very much uh, the likes of Weymouth, Barnstable, Trowbridge, Salisbury, Saltash. Um, current champions, um, well, the season curtailed in 2021 and 2020, but the current champions were a team called Willand Rovers from uh, 2019, uh, a Devon side. Um, so there we are. That's that's the Western League. Um, two names mentioned in that in that little report. Um, one was George Comrie, who was a Scott uh, centre half, played for Millwall from 1905 to 1909. He had previously played in Scotland for Third Lanark. Um, he would play for four years. We don't actually have any stat details for for George Comrie. Um, he was seen very much as. Um, uh, reading the, the the lines of the south, he was seen very much as a kind of a a reinforcement of the mill defence in those early nineteen hundreds. Um, he would leave us in nineteen o nine. After his mill career was over, George returned back to his native Scotland to Dundee, where he's listed on Wikipedia as having made seventy three appearances for Dundee nineteen o nine to nineteen twelve, scoring five goals in that period. Before returning to Huddersfield nineteen twelve to thirteen. And then four far athletic back home again. Um, during the First World War, George, as which would affect all all forms of you know aspects of life, but certainly football very very deeply, listeners. Uh, George Comrie served as a sergeant in the Black Watch during the First World War. Um, his um, his son Daniel Comrie also served with the Scots Guards in the Second Conflict in 1939 to 45. Um, George Comrie. Dear listeners, 1885 to 1958, he died aged 73 in Falkirk in Scotland. Um, the other name that caught my eye, um, which is quite quite a nice um, f- kind of cigarette card of him um, on the on Wikipedia, you can look this up. Alf Twig, that's spelled T-W-I-G-G. Um, he was an a, association footballer, as they put it. He played as a forward. Um, made 182 appearances for the Lions, or the Dockers, I should call them, 1905 to 1910. During the late years on the island, uh, the Isle of Dogs, um, 182 appearances, as we said, and 88 goals. That's 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 some scoring record by Alf Twig. He came from Ashby de la Zouche in Leicestershire. Um, he born in 1882, died 1957. He played as a forward, having been around some local clubs there, Burton Albion, Hinckley and Gainsborough Trinity. The bulk of his career was spent playing for the Dockers on the Isle of Dogs. Um, one fascinating record that he holds here, though, which, which is relevant to this fixture, um, Twig holds the record for the highest number of goals uh, scored between London rivals Millwall and West Ham United. He scored 10 times against West Ham. His first goal being on April the 16th, 1906, and his last goal against the Hammers on the 26th of April, 1909. That is a fascinating and wonderful 
statistic. John Alfred Twig, 1882 to 1957. RIP, Alf. There we are, dear I Hope you enjoyed that little section on um, a typically robust fixture played between uh, West Ham and Mill. A 1 0 win on this occasion for the Hammers. Um, but the usual standard FA inquiry to follow. Big thank you for listening, dear listeners. All the best. Thank you for listening to Aston Millwall. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a cheeky little review. Over the Aston Millwall. Till next time. Who do you want to watch? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.